Our Old Testament lesson comes from Second Chronicles chapter 20. Second Chronicles chapter 20, hear now the word of our God. After this, the Moabites and Ammonites, and with them some of the Mayonites, came against Jehoshaphat for battle. Some men came and told Jehoshaphat, A great multitude is coming against you from Edom, from beyond the sea, and behold, they are in Hazazon Tamar, that is, En Gedi. Then Jehoshaphat was afraid and set his face to seek the Lord and proclaimed a fast throughout all Judah. And Judah assembled to seek help from the Lord. From all the cities of Judah they came to seek the Lord. And Jehoshaphat stood in the assembly of Judah and Jerusalem in the house of the Lord before the new court and said, O Lord, God of our fathers, are you not God in heaven? You rule over all the kingdoms of the nations. In your hand are power and might so that none is able to withstand you. Did you not, our God, drive out the inhabitants of this land before your people Israel and give it forever to the descendants of Abraham, your friend? And they have lived in it and have built for you in it a sanctuary for your name, saying, If disaster comes upon us, the sword, judgment, or pestilence, or famine, we will stand before this house and before you, for your name is in this house, and cry out to you in our affliction, and you will hear and save. And now behold, the men of Ammon and Moab and Mount Seir, whom you would not let Israel invade when they came from the land of Egypt, and whom they avoided and did not destroy, behold, they reward us by coming to drive us out of your possession, which you have given us to inherit. O our God, will you not execute judgment on them? For we are powerless against this great horde that is coming against us. We do not know what to do, but our eyes are on you. Meanwhile, all Judah stood before the Lord with their little ones, their wives, and their children. And the Spirit of the Lord came upon Yahaziel, the son of Zechariah, son of Benaiah, son of Yehiel, son of Mataniah, a Levite of the sons of Asaph in the midst of the assembly. And he said, Listen, all Judah and inhabitants of Jerusalem and King Jehoshaphat. Thus says the Lord to you, Do not be afraid and do not be dismayed at this great horde, for the battle is not yours but God's. Tomorrow go down against them. Behold, they will come up by the ascent of Ziz. You will find them at the end of the valley east of the wilderness of Yeruel. You will not need to fight in this battle. Stand firm, hold your position, and see the salvation of the Lord on your behalf. O Judah and Jerusalem, do not be afraid and do not be dismayed. Tomorrow go out against them, and the Lord will be with you. Then Jehoshaphat bowed his head with his face to the ground, and all Judah and the inhabitants of Jerusalem fell down before the Lord, worshipping the Lord. And the Levites of the Kohathites and the Korahites stood up to praise the Lord, the God of Israel, with a very loud voice. And they rose early in the morning and went out into the wilderness of Tekoa. And when they went out, Jehoshaphat stood and said, Hear me, Judah, and inhabitants of Jerusalem. Believe in the Lord your God, and you will be established. Believe his prophets, and you will succeed. And when he had taken counsel with the people, he appointed those who were to sing to the Lord and praise him in holy attire as they went before the army and say, Give thanks to the Lord, for his steadfast love endures forever. And when they began to sing and praise, the Lord set an ambush against the men of Ammon, Moab, and Mount Seir, who had come against Judah, so that they were routed. For the men of Ammon and Moab rose against the inhabitants of Mount Seir, devoting them to destruction. And when they had made an end of the inhabitants of Seir, they all helped to destroy one another. When Judah came to the watchtower of the wilderness, they looked toward the horde, and behold, there were dead bodies lying on the ground. None had escaped. When Jehoshaphat and his people came to take their spoil, they found among them in great numbers goods, clothing, and precious things, which they took for themselves until they could carry no more. They were three days in taking the spoil that was so much. 
On the fourth day, they assembled in the valley of Barakah, for there they blessed the Lord. Therefore, the name of that place has been called the valley of Barakah to this day. Then they returned, every man of Judah and Jerusalem, and Jehoshaphat at their head, returning to Jerusalem with joy, for the Lord had made them rejoice over their enemies. They came to Jerusalem with harps and lyres and trumpets to the house of the Lord. And the fear of God came up on all the kingdoms of the countries when they heard that the Lord had fought against the enemies of Israel. So the realm of Jehoshaphat was quiet, for his God gave him rest all around. This is the word of the Lord. Jehoshaphat was the, the great-great-grandson of Solomon. It's, it's been about 70 years since the death of Solomon. And uh, the Edomites, the men of Mount Seir, obviously no longer fear the house of David. And so when Jehoshaphat hears that a great multitude is coming against you, we're told that he was afraid. And he set his face to seek the Lord and proclaimed a fast throughout all Judah. And the people responded by coming and seeking the Lord. Part of what Chronicles is doing here is it's reminding us of, of what Solomon had prayed at the temple when Solomon dedicated the temple. Because Solomon had prayed, listen to the prayers of your servant, the king, and of your people Israel when they pray toward this place. And Jehoshaphat remembers how God had responded. If my people who are called by my name humble themselves and pray and seek my face and turn from their wicked ways, then I will hear from heaven and will forgive their sin and heal their land. So Jehoshaphat does what God called the son of David to do. He stood in the house of the Lord and he prayed. O Lord, God of our fathers, are you not God in heaven? Our Father who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. You rule over all the kingdoms of the nations, thy kingdom come. And he recites the history of God's faithfulness to his people, not just random pieces, but he remembers God's promise to, to Abraham's seed, that, and he recounts the establishment of the temple. He, he echoes the prayer of Solomon, Jehoshaphat saying, okay God, you said this is what we're supposed to do, so we're doing it. You said to bring our prayers to you in light of whatever trouble we face, to bring it to you and put it in the light of heaven, to put it in the light of who you are, to pray toward this place. And so he prays, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. You see, praying thy will be done is not primarily about sort of resignation to whatever happens. No, it's, it's about conforming earthly realities to heavenly realities. Jesus doesn't just say, pray, thy will be done, O oh well. He prays, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. He takes the very real peril of the moment and he sees it in the light of the glory of God. Because Jehoshaphat knows who God is, and he knows who he is, and he knows what his problem is. I mean, this is oftentimes, we, we got the last one down cold. We know what our problem is. Or do we? Because if we don't really know who God is, and we don't really know who we are, will we really understand our problem correctly? So notice that in Jehoshaphat's prayer, he starts with who God is, and he sees who he is, and so now he's got his problem correctly identified. 
O God, will you not execute judgment on them? For we are powerless against this great horde that is coming against us. We do not know what to do, but our eyes are on you. You see, when when Jehoshaphat prays, thy will be done, he says, okay, the one thing I know that I'm supposed to do is pray. I got that one. So now, O God, please do whatever it is that you are now supposed to do. Because you are the one who said that you would deliver us. You said that if we prayed toward this house, that if I, your servant, if I, the son of David, prayed toward this house, that you would hear and you would act. This is obviously not a sort of que sera, sera, whatever will be, will be. No, it's when you pray, thy will be done. You pray with expectance because God has revealed what his will is. Now, you don't know how God is going to do it. Jehoshaphat doesn't know how God is going to deliver them. Indeed, he understands full well that God's deliverance might come after the Edomites sack Jerusalem. That would still be deliverance. It, just, it wouldn't be his preference, but that's, he's not praying, my will be done. He's praying, thy will be done, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven, by us as, by, and by all. And then the Spirit of the Lord comes upon one of the Levites, Yahaziel, and he prophesies that the battle is not yours, but God's. So go out to your post. So what does God command of you? Well, he calls you to do what you're called to do, but you're not the ones that are going to fight. Stand firm, hold your position, and see the salvation of the Lord on your behalf. And so Jehoshaphat even puts the, the singers out in front of the army. He, he, believes, he believes that God is going to do what he promises. So he's like, okay, we're going out to a celebration. You think about the singers, they're like, okay, Jehoshaphat, I sure hope you know what you're doing. Because we're not dressed for battle. We're out here to sing. And they praise God. And go to their posts. And it says that they sang uh, Psalm 106 or Psalm 136. I mean, there's give thanks to the Lord. I mean, if you said, and they sang Amazing Grace, you'd realize they, they sang the whole. But, so when it says they sang, give thanks to the Lord for his steadfast love endures forever, well, that's how Psalm 106 and 136 start. So that's, they sang that, one of those psalms, perhaps all of those psalms. And, but notice that there's nothing passive about Jehoshaphat's approach to praying, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. So he goes out as he's commanded, and the fear of God comes upon all the nations. So when you pray, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven, you're praying that, that all the nations would fear the Lord. Because after all, what is the will of God? God's will is that every knee should bow and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. That is God's will. So when you're praying, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven, you are praying that, God's, that, that we and everybody else would know and submit and do God's will. Our New Testament lesson comes from 1 Peter chapter 4. 1 Peter chapter 4, hear now the word of the Lord. Since therefore Christ suffered in the flesh, arm yourselves with the same way of thinking. 
For whoever has suffered in the flesh has ceased from sin, so as to live for the rest of the time in the flesh no longer for human passions, but for the will of God. For the time that is past suffices for doing what the Gentiles want to do, living in sensuality, passions, drunkenness, orgies, drinking parties, and lawless idolatry. With respect to this, they are surprised when you do not join them in the same flood of debauchery, and they malign you. But they will give account to him who is ready to judge the living and the dead. For this is why the gospel was preached even to those who are dead, that though judged in the flesh the way people are, they might live in the spirit the way God does. The end of all things is at hand. Therefore, be self-controlled and sober-minded for the sake of your prayers. Above all, keep loving one another earnestly, since love covers a multitude of sins. Show hospitality to one another without grumbling. As each has received a gift, use it to serve one another as good stewards of God's varied grace. Whoever speaks as one who speaks oracles of God. Whoever serves as one who serves by the strength that God supplies. In order that in everything God may be glorified through Jesus Christ. To him belong glory and dominion forever and ever. Amen. Beloved, do not be surprised at the fiery trial when it comes upon you to test you. As though something strange were happening to you. But rejoice insofar as you share Christ's sufferings, that you may also rejoice and be glad when his glory is revealed. If you are insulted for the name of Christ, you are blessed, because the spirit of glory and of God rests upon you. But let none of you suffer as a murderer or a thief or an evildoer or as a meddler. Yet if someone suffers as a Christian, let him not be ashamed, but let him glorify God in that name. For it is time for judgment to begin at the household of God, And if it begins with us, what will be the outcome for those who do not obey the gospel of God? And if the righteous is scarcely saved, what will become of the ungodly and the sinner? Therefore, let those who suffer according to God's will entrust their souls to a faithful creator while doing good. This is the word of the Lord. Yesterday was an interesting day going from... Monte McGill's funeral celebration, uh, far more of a celebration than a funeral, and those churches know really well how to give thanks and praise to God, and just when you look at at what God did through Monte, he had spent spent 15, 20 years as a gangbanger and a drug dealer, and then God got a hold of him, and the last... 15, 20 years of his life, God used him mightily in, in bringing many to himself and in discipling a whole generation of young people on the west side of South Bend. And the, the, the testimonies to Monte's uh, faithfulness in, in seeking the kingdom of God, in praying, thy will be done, uh, were demonstrable. And, and indeed, it was neat seeing his youngest son stand up and profess his faith at the end of the at the end of the funeral celebration and he's I think he's getting baptized today so thanks be to God but then I went pretty much straight from there to Gilbert's deathbed and the contrasts in many ways were striking but it was something that that Mikhail Cooper said at Monte's funeral that was equally true of Gilbert because when you, when you die, you can't take anything with you. So the, the gifts that God gives you are to be given to others. They're not for you. 
They're for those around you. And Monte exhibited that beautifully, but so did Gilbert. Whether you live for 51 years or for seven days, you can still be just as fruitful in the kingdom of God by, if you are praying, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven, then you're praying that, that in your life, God's will would be done. Now, of course, we would far rather that my will be done. And, of course, that gets flipped around on us. So what do we mean when we pray, thy will be done? Oftentimes we use the phrase God's will, the will of God, in two different ways. In fact, Scripture does. So, And it's exactly the same phrase in Greek either way you go. So the fact that we do exactly the same thing in English is entirely appropriate. But when we talk about the will of God, sometimes we talk about God's will in, as, as he's commanded us, this is how you're supposed to live. So this is God's revealed will, this is his prescriptive will, it's what he tells us to do. But we, we also speak of God's will in terms of what he has decreed and what he has decided to do, what his decretive will, his secret will, as we sometimes say. And uh, it's worth noting that First Peter 4 uses exactly the same phrase, once for each sense of the term. In verse 2, Peter tells us that our sufferings should help us think about how to live, no longer for human passions, no longer driven by our desires, no longer saying, my will be done, but rather for the will of God. That we live to do God's will. We live to put into practice the things that God has said. Uh, The will of God here is contrasted with what the Gentiles want to do. Are you driven by your desires? Or are you living for the will of God? Are you living the way that God calls you to live? The way that he has told you to live? So so in verse 2, we're talking about God's revealed will. Here's what God says you're supposed to do. Don't be like the Gentiles. The the contrast in Monte's life from how he had... He he would say that he, he had all the money. I mean, he doesn't know how many hundreds of thousands of dollars passed through his hands. All gone. But then, when Jesus got a hold of him, he had no money. He had, he had very little of anything. But he was like, living for the will of God is so much better than having all that money when I was pursuing my will. But then at the end of the chapter, Peter urges us, Let those who suffer according to God's will entrust their souls to a faithful creator while doing good. Here, when it speaks of who suffer according to God's will, it's referring to what God has ordained, what he has decided to do, his decretive will, as it's sometimes said. His his prescriptive will, his revealed will, refers to what God has told us to do. But his decretive will, his secret will, refers to what he has decided to do. And it's, it, this is part of the point Peter makes when he says that it, if you suffer as a murderer, that's not suffering for Jesus. If you suffer as a meddler, someone who sticks his nose into bis- something that's not his business, that's not suffering for Jesus. But if you do what is right, if you live according to the will of God in what he's told you to do, then your suffering is suffering for Jesus. Because the point of praying, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven, 
is that we want these two aspects of God's will to be reunited. There's a way in which things aren't the way that they're supposed to be. Things aren't the, the what's happening in this world right now isn't according to God's will as to what He has commanded and us to do. But we want on earth to become like in heaven, where God's will is done here as well as there. So when we pray, Thy will be done, we're praying, I think our larger catechism puts it nicely, I put it in the bulletin, because it starts off by explaining why Jesus says, on earth as it is in heaven. Because there's a problem on earth. We have a habit of not doing God's will. What do we pray for in the third petition? In the third petition, which is, Thy will be done in earth as it is in heaven, acknowledging that by nature, we and all men are not only utterly unable and unwilling to know and to do the will of God, but prone to rebel against His word and to repine and murmur against His providence and wholly inclined to do the will of the flesh and of the devil. So notice how the catechism draws on both senses of God's will. There's the prescriptive will, what God commands us to do. That's what we rebel against. We don't want to do what God says. No one tells me what to do. But then we also murmur against his providence, his decretive will. And the result is that we then turn to the will of the flesh, the things the Gentiles want to do. The irony being that's actually just the will of the devil. So when we pray, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven, we must reorient ourselves toward heaven. That's like like what Jehoshaphat does. Toward our heavenly father. And so, as the catechism puts it, we pray that God would, by his spirit, take away from ourselves and others all blindness, weakness, indisposedness, and perverseness of heart, And by His grace, make us able and willing to know, do, and submit to His will in all things with the like humility, cheerfulness, faithfulness, diligence, zeal, sincerity, and constancy as the angels do in heaven. If I'm going to pray that God's will would be done on earth, then I need to pray that I would do God's will, that I would know what He commands, and that I would do what He commands And love what he commands. The Apostle John speaks of this in 1 John 2, in verses 15 to 17, where he says, Do not love the world or the things in the world. If anyone loves the world, the love of the Father is not in him. For all that is in the world, the desires of the flesh and the desires of the eyes and pride of life, is not from the Father, but is from the world. And the world is passing away along with its desires. But whoever does the will of God abides forever. John urges us to pray, Thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Paul says it similarly in Colossians 4, For this is the will of God, your sanctification, that you abstain from sexual immorality, that each one of you know how to control his own body in holiness and honor, not in the passion of of lust like the Gentiles who do not know God, that no one transgress and wrong his brother in this matter, because the Lord is an avenger in all these things, as we told you beforehand and solemnly warned you. For God has not called us for impurity, but in holiness. The will of God is your sanctification. The will of God is that you might be holy. 
in some ways the bewildering contrast of yesterday. I mean, when you Monte not only had been he was he a drug dealer and gangbanger, but he had seven children with six different women, only one of whom he was married to. For 20 years, he was living for the lusts of the flesh, for stuff and status. He was living for the world, everything that John and Paul were saying not to. But God, when, when God got a hold of Monte McGill, Monte would not rest until everyone he knew knew Jesus. And when Monte died, his soul was made perfect in holiness and immediately passed into glory. And his body, being still united to Christ, will now rest in the grave until the resurrection. Fifty-one years with a whole lot of good and bad and ugly all mixed together. Monte was a, a lot like the rest of us. And then we went to the hospital to be with Matthew and Naomi and little Gilbert. But God, God had placed his name on Gilbert and God does not forget his little ones. And so when Gilbert died, his soul was made perfect in holiness and immediately passed into glory. And his body, being still united to Christ, will now rest in the grave until the resurrection. Seven days isn't a whole lot of time. Gilbert never had an opportunity to decide to do anything. But whether you live 51 years or seven days, you can still do the will of God. And that's what we pray for. We pray that God will make us and others able and willing to know, do, and submit to his will. We've been using the Psalms to illustrate the petitions of the Lord's Prayer, and today we're we're praying Psalm 143 together. If you turn over to Psalm 143, we sang it earlier. But let's, let's hear how to pray, Thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Psalm 143 begins by showing the contrast between earth and heaven. Hear my prayer, O Lord. Give ear to my pleas for mercy. In your faithfulness answer me in your righteousness. Enter not into judgment with your servant, for no one living is righteous before you. Uh, you can see how David once again begins his prayer with the theme of hallowed be thy name because everything is based on God's faithfulness and righteousness. No matter how righteous you may think you are, no one living is righteous when he stands before God. And David then turns to the reason why he prays, the reason why he seeks mercy. He seeks mercy because of the troubles and afflictions he faces. The enemy has pursued my soul. He has crushed my life to the ground. He has made me sit in darkness like those long dead. Therefore my spirit faints within me. My heart within me is appalled. David remembers God's kingdom, his mighty deeds, the wondrous works of salvation that God had done. I remember the days of old. I meditate on all that you have done. I ponder the works of your hands. Do you meditate? Do you reflect? Do you contemplate God's mighty deeds in days gone by? The mighty deeds that God has wrought in Jesus Christ. His wondrous works that he, he did for, for Abraham, for Moses, for David. All of these are, are, are suitable in our prayers. And David then says, I stretch out my hands to you. My soul thirsts for you like a parched land. Uh, I grew up in California, so I, I thought I knew what a parched land looked like. But then I spent a summer in Eritrea, in East Africa. Then I learned what a parched land looks like. 
It's a very similar climate to what David would have known. It's hot and dry. It can go for months without rain. Water is precious. And so after spending the summer there, as, the, as my, my flight was returning back to the States, I was just overwhelmed with green. Just stunned by green. Almost like I had not seen the color before. <laughs> when David refers to himself as a parched land, my soul thirsts for you like a parched land, he is saying that God's judgment has withered him. God's withholding of blessing has left him waterless. Because water is a blessing from God. And David longs for, pants for the living water that flows from the living God. I pant, I thirst for the living God. Do you thirst for God? Do you long after Him? Jesus said, I am the bread of life. Whoever comes to me shall not hunger. Whoever believes in me will never thirst. Have you experienced this? I suspect you have. Times when our souls pant and thirst for the living God and we feel as though we dwell in a barren wasteland. And so the psalmist cries out, Answer me quickly, O Lord. My spirit fails. Hide not your face from me, lest I be like those who go down to the pit. Let me hear in the morning of your steadfast love, for in you I trust Make me know the way that I should go, for to you I lift up my soul. You can hear in these words how Jesus himself made this prayer his own, and that's how we can make it our own as well. Because Jesus on the cross said, I thirst. And as we saw on Good Friday, there there are days in the Christian life that end with Jesus in the grave. There there are days that that end in darkness. There are days of depression and grief and anxiety. And it's true for us because it was first true for Jesus. Jesus cried out to his Father, and in spite of his cries, he did go down to the pit. You see, you think about Jehoshaphat's prayer, and God answered and saved. And when Jesus prayed, he died. Remember I said earlier, Jehoshaphat knew well that the answer might come after destruction and death. And that's what happened to Jesus. He endured the cross. And I know sometimes sometimes you hear the, the oversimplified version be, being that Jesus suffered so that you don't have to. You won't find that anywhere in the Bible. Because Jesus said to his disciples, take up your cross and follow me. The passage we read from Peter in 1 Peter 4, suffering for Christ, suffering in Christ, suffering with Christ, this is a gracious thing that God grants you that you might be conformed to the likeness of his sufferings. The sufferings and afflictions that we endure are not sort of apart from the will of God. They are the will of God for our sanctification, that we might be made more like Jesus. Now, remember, Peter, Peter also says that bit about how, you know, if, you, if you suffer as a murderer, if you suffer as a meddler, I mean, notice there, he, you know, that's a pretty wide range. You know, murderer, ooh, really bad. Meddler. Anybody here ever meddled? <laughs> when you suffer for what you did, 
that's where you need to repent. But when you suffer innocently, you're being conformed to the likeness of Jesus. This is where, in the particular case, if you ask me, why is God doing this? There are many, many things that I can't answer and I don't know. But the one thing that I always know is that when you're going through suffering that you didn't deserve, God is doing this to make you more like Jesus. Because he brought his son to glory through the cross. You see, that that saying, Jesus suffered so you don't have to, you need to add one more phrase. Jesus suffered the wrath and curse of God so that you don't have to. That's what you will never receive. You will never receive the wrath and curse of God due to us for sin because Jesus died for that. He suffered for that. But you see, the part about the innocent suffering servant, that's the part that you do get because Jesus is conforming us to his own likeness. And so notice that in, in, in Psalm 143, as G- Jesus is crying out to the Father. But in spite of his cries, he did go down to the pit, but he, he did not stay there. Because as the psalmist says, let me hear in the morning your steadfast love. And it was on the morning of the third day, the morning of the first day of the new creation, that Jesus heard in the morning of your steadfast love as he was raised up from the dead. There is a sense in which we do share in the sufferings of Christ, even taking for a time of his dereliction, of his abandonment. But that means that even our thirsting, even our longing to know Christ, is also a participation in him. And David shows us what this means in praying for the will of God in verses 9 through 12. Deliver me from my enemies, O Lord. I have fled to you for refuge. Teach me to do your will, for you are my God. Let your good spirit lead me on level ground. For your name's sake, O Lord, preserve my life. In your righteousness, bring my soul out of trouble. And in your steadfast love, you will cut off my enemies, and you will destroy all the adversaries of my soul. For I am your servant. In the midst of trouble, in the midst of a trial, in the midst of everything going the wrong way, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. This this is not a passive resignation to whatever will be, will be. No, when you pray thy will be done, you're not saying, I don't care, do whatever you want. No, you are praying, what's happening around me is not your will. And we want to see your will done on earth, even as your will is done in heaven. And so you'll see in David's prayer, both aspects of God's will being referred to. Uh, deliver me from your enemies and teach me to do your will. Your will is for my enemies to be destroyed. How do I know this? Because I am your servant. At the dedication of the temple, Solomon had prayed that God would hear his servant, singular, the son of David. God's promise to his servant David was that he would bless David's son, adopt David's son as his own son, And therefore, David's son rules over God's kingdom. So when David prays that God would cut off his adversaries, destroy his enemies, he is praying that the kingdom of God would come. He is praying that God's will would be done on earth as it is in heaven. And so we pray Psalm 143, 
that God would destroy the enemies of our Lord Jesus Christ. We pray for the coming of His kingdom. We pray that God's will would be done on earth. Thy will be done is not a prayer of resignation. It is a prayer calling upon God to act. And it is also a prayer that God would teach us to do His will. Jesus is the Son of David, the servant of the Lord, who did this perfectly. And because we have been united to Him, when we pray, Thy will be done, we are praying that God would teach us to do His will. That we and everyone else would deny our own will and without any murmuring, obey your will, for it alone is good. We are praying that the Spirit of God would lead us on level ground, that we might know and do that which God commands. So when you pray, pray that that God would take away our blindness and help us to see. Pray that God would take away our weakness and give us strength. Pray that God would take away our perverseness of heart, that he would give us new hearts. Because only then will we be able and willing to know, to do, and to submit to God's will. But I I like how our catechism puts it. It doesn't just say that we know and do and submit to God's will. But to do all this with humility. After all, he's God. We're not. To do do this, to know this, to submit to God's will with cheerfulness. Because we know that His will for us is for our good. And so we can go out against that enemy and put the singers out in front and sing and give praise to God with joy and thankfulness knowing that in the end, this is going to end really, really good. And we need faithfulness and diligence. We need to be constant in our seeking to know and to do God's will. This is why Jesus taught us to pray, Thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. We need practice at this. Because we're not very good at it. So we need to practice. This is where, as we've seen, it's not that you need to change what you're praying for. Most likely, I mean, Most likely, you're already praying for the right sorts of things. But we need to pray, to change how we pray. What is God's will for the sick? I'm not asking for his secret will, his decretive will. I'm asking, what is God's revealed will for the sick? Well, think back to 1 Peter 4. God's will for the sick is that those who suffer according to God's will entrust their souls to a faithful creator while doing good. Pray for the sick, that they will hold fast to Jesus. Certainly, pray for their healing. That is, part of God's revealed will is that the coming of Christ's kingdom brings life and health and peace. But it's worth remembering that both Monte's death and Gilbert's death resulted in life and health and peace. Because the resurrection of Jesus has obliterated the power of death. Death simply cannot win. So it's not as though if they died, that was God saying no. It was God giving life to the dead because their bodies, being still united to Christ, do rest in their graves till the resurrection. Death can't win. 
Sickness can't win. But if we tell people that the real hope is that God will heal you in this life, that's not the real hope. The healings in this life are signs pointing to that hope. What should you pray for for the sick? Pray that they will hold fast to Jesus. Pray that they will endure in loving God and loving their neighbor. Pray that they will continue to trust and hope in the Lord and that we would too. Because when we pray God's will to be done on earth as it is in heaven, we're praying about God's revealed will. We're praying that we would do what God says, that we would live as the people of God in the midst of a crooked and perverse generation. And because of the resurrection of Jesus, death can't win. Let's pray. Father, we do thank you and praise you for your mighty deeds. We thank you and praise you for your wondrous works in Jesus Christ, your Son, our Lord, whom you raised up out of death into life everlasting. And so we ask that you would have mercy upon us for his sake, that you would help us, because we are weak and frail, and we forget so often what you have done in Jesus. And we thank you that you have not left us in our sin and our misery. You have not left us to perish, but you sent him who knew no sin to become sin for us, that he might take the wrath and curse that was due to us for sin, that we might be joined to his life, that we might be conformed to the likeness of his death, that in our resurrection we would participate in his, that we would be yours forever. Thank you. Have mercy upon us for Jesus' sake. Amen.